We're going to be continuing our worship this morning uh, in, in the scriptures, and we have been in a series uh, for several weeks now titled Spreads. If you want to open your Bibles up this morning, if you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. You can follow along on the screens. That'll be available to those following us online as well. But we're going to turn to Acts chapter 12, which is um, near the last one-third of the Bible, right after the Gospels. And, and really, the, act, the, the book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. So we have the same author, this, this follower of Jesus who documented the life of Jesus. But in, in Acts, we kind of have a sequel. It's the sequel to everything that happened once Jesus resurrected. And it's really the story of the early church. And the title of this series is called Spread, How to Live When You Have uh, no longer have home court advantage. And I love that because sometimes in life it just feels like we're living alone. Sometimes it feels like we're, once again, just trudging through life. Our backs are against the wall, and we don't always have uh, home court cheering for us. And um, this could just apply to so many areas of our lives. It just some, I know seasons and positions and our influence as human beings, whether it be the workplace, whether it be our education, whether it be our faith, um, sometimes it just feels like we're outnumbered. We're pushing up against the wall. And, and, and it's amazing because we're looking at the, the early church. We're looking at the book of Acts when uh, the, the church wasn't the majority, right? They were actually outnumbered immensely. But I love it because the early church exploded during this time at a time when stats and, and, and an observation should have told you, no, this, this isn't possible, right? And uh, God's mission for his church, he sends the church to be a people that spread, to, to grab those who are disconnected on the outside and bring them onto the inside. And I love it because Jesus, he resurrects, he leaves, and, and, and then he empowers his church, meaning this. He empowers the spread not to be like God being like, watch this magical spread. You know, it's like the, the, just like his message spreads throughout the earth. Jesus actually chooses to partner with you and I, imperfect human beings, to be a part of his purposes in the world. And I think that's so amazing. And that's such a, a beautiful theme that that's kind of represented underneath the hood of this idea that God's church is called to spread. It involves you and I. You and I have a purpose. For some of us who wake up in the morning and are like, I don't know what my purpose is, Jesus begins to inform that when you begin to follow him. He begins to remind us once again that we should less and less look inward, but more and more begin to give our lives for a greater purpose. So this morning, the title of this message specifically, I've titled this, uh, The Cliffhanger. The Cliffhanger. And I asked a question during the two-minute mingle. Uh, the question was, TV shows or movies. So I want to kind of see a, a show of hands. How many of you guys would say, like, if I had to choose one or the other, you'd say i choose TV shows? TV shows? One person? Okay, so if you said movies, lift your hand. Wow, that's mind-blowing. I said to somebody before service, I was like, I bet it's 75, 25 uh, on TV shows. Uh, that's mind-blowing. Okay, anyway, uh, it shows you I'm off. Uh, anyway, so this is what I love, though. I, I'm a TV guy. Um, favorite show in the world is Lost. Come at me. Um, I will prove to you why it's the greatest show of all time. Come on now. Um, we can get in an argument out in the church parking lot uh, after church, so uh, come at me. Anyway, uh, here's what I love about, here's, here's why TV shows. TV shows are so classic because they always have cliffhangers. It's always like literally, and that's probably why you movie people are upset. You're like, I don't like that. 
You know what I mean? You're like watching the show, and then it always is at the end of the show. It's like, cliffhanger. You gotta watch next week. You know, and you're just like, no, because it's like the greatest show, right? I'll never forget Lost, my favorite show. During season three, it was in the middle of the writer's strike in L.A. So literally, like mid-season, at like the pinnacle of like, this is the greatest show of all time. Like they had this writer's strike, and it was gone for like three months, and it was just like the most brutal time of my life. You know what I mean? Like me and the Lord had to get so close, and I mean just just pushing through. You know what I'm saying? But this is just so crazy. It's like. We're looking at this cliffhanger in this text this morning, right? Because there's just a lot of unknowns. I just, we're going to stop at a point in the text this morning where it's just kind of abrupt. And we're going to be left at a point of a cliffhanger. And, and as the readers, we're going to be reading about the unknowns of the early church because things start getting pretty heavy. Now, up to this point, the, the one guy's died because of his faith, but that's going to begin to be, begin to pick up a little bit more. So for us as the reader this morning, there's going to be this unknown of like, wh- what happens What's next? There's this cliffhanger of kind of like, what's the next part of the story? Because it just seems like things are going to go bad for followers of Jesus during this time. But I know it relates to us as well, beyond just reading the scripture to our lives. Some of us ask the questions of unknowns all the time. What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my marriage? What's going to happen to my relationships? What's going to happen to the world? What's going to happen to my church? Right? We, we have a lot of unknowns, and we live in this kind of cliffhanger. And we're constantly, it just feels like in life, living in repetition of what feels like cliffhanger after cliffhanger, right? Where it's like God's helping us navigate through the fact that sometimes the future feels unknown. And he has us work in this repeti- repetition over and over again. And this is what I believe. TV shows caught on to God's design, and we're like, hey, we're going to use that method, because obviously that's what happens, Right? The unknowns, the, the keeping us grasping on and saying, what's, what's going to happen next? I don't know what the future looks like. And for some of that, that seems very grim. It's almost like a fog comes over our life when we think about our future. For others, maybe we're excited. We're in a season of excitement. But this morning, we're going to be looking at this section of Scripture where it, it, it just is going to kind of feel like a, a cliffhanger. So we're going to read in Acts chapter 12, starting with verse 1. And we're just going to read five verses this morning. It says this. It says, it was about time... This time that the King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church and intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to, the guard, uh, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Let's pray this morning. Lord, there's cliffhangers all over the place in our life. But Lord, we're just thankful for peace in the midst of the unknown. Lord, in this life, we don't always receive crystal clarity on what's going to happen next. But we're reminded, even of that song we sang this morning, that you give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. You don't call us to be a people of comfort. We see that in the book of Acts. People are constantly being challenged out of their comfort zones. But what you do promise is a spirit of peace. So, Lord, whatever seasons represented this morning, I pray we would open our hearts to receive that spirit of peace over our lives. Whatever looks ahead, if it's something that, man, we think about the future, we think about the unknowns of what's next, Lord, would your peace rest on our lives right now. In Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen, amen. So it's crazy because 
we're going to be lo- looking at this section and kind of breaking it down of Scripture, but kind of leading up to this, um, th- there was this group of people, right, that were following this, this dead guy who supposedly raised from death to life named Jesus. And they were given this title. If you're here last week, we, we'd understand that these, these Christians, these people were given this title as Christians, right? There was this kind of like popular perception, but it was this title that really kind of more related to kind of like partisan politics of like, oh, okay, like those are the evangelicals. Those are the ones who like follow this dead guy. And, and that's all okay and like hunky-dory and all these things, but unfortunately like this thing starts making some noise. Like these followers of Jesus start kind of disrupting the culture to the point where people are starting to take notice. It's starting to disrupt something. And specifically, it's starting to disrupt uh, this character named Herod. So let's look back in those first couple verses really quick. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, it says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. We're like, whoa! You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is like shifting into a higher gear very, very quickly for the church in terms of how they relate to persecution. And this character Herod, I think it's helpful to understand, like, who this guy is. Herod, there's so many different Herods in the Bible. This Herod, his name is Herod Agrippa. And he's son of Herod Aristobulus, who is the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, if you've read the Bible, the Christmas narrative, you would understand that Herod the Great is the infant killer. Jesus included. When Jesus was an infant, like, he, he calls out this, like, hey, we're going we're gonna to kill all of these different infants, right? This was Herod the Great. And then his brother, Herod the Great's brother, uh, was actually a guy, half-brother, was named Herod Antipas. And he was the guy that wreaked havoc by killing John the Baptist, beheading him. He was also the guy that initiated and affirmed Jesus being flogged because of who he w- was when he was on trial. So just to kind of make the point this morning, this is a long line of people that wreaked havoc and terror as leaders, as people that governed over specific territories, And for Herod during this time, he was initiated by this region of Judea, the Jews' kind of geographical home, and he was initiated as a person to kind of keep the peace. And unfortunately for Jews during this time, Christians were disrupting the peace. And because they were disrupting the peace, Herod had to act very, very swiftly. But for the Jews during this time, Herod was their guy. Like, this is the guy. He was a Jew, grew up in a Jewish family himself who was like the guy that kind of represented and advocated for their region. And now there was this threat. There was this disruption called the church. And a lot of Jews were complaining about these Christians who had left their faith behind to follow this guy named Jesus, right? So what does he do? He orders a hit. He kills James, this character that were introduced as one of these followers of Jesus, one of the main followers, one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles, and he's killed by the sword. But the, what we have to understand is this was swift. It wasn't like intentional. It wasn't like this like, hey, we're going to like crucify you. And it's going to be this like painstaking, like enduring process like Jesus had to endure. Like that could have happened. Like Herod could have chose that route. But the fact that the detail of him being killed by the sword is included in the scriptures clues us into this was fast. This was quick. This was a, a, more of a kind of like he's going to die, but it's going to just be quick. It's not like we have like a political statement to make about how we're going to terrorize this person and like make this a big spectacle during what was the Passover time uh, during this time, which was a huge festival of Jews. It was just kind of like we'll take care of it. We'll get it done. Like we're, we're going to be moving on. But it doesn't obviously affirm the fact that um, the, the reality that this is morally disgusting behavior. 
But this is a guy that, because of his constituents, he was politically motivated to kill another human being. Absolutely disgusting behavior, regardless of the endurance that the person had to endure. We move on in Acts chapter 12, verses 3 through 4. So it sets the stage of understanding what was happening here. Herod killing and beginning to persecute the church. And it says, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So James is killed. People are like, okay, yeah, Herod, represent the Jews. He's like, hey, people kind of like that. I was kind of low-key, but now I'm getting some affirmation. So now, you know what? We're going we're gonna to cut the snake's head off. The leader, the leader of the church, Peter. It goes on to say, this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, right? So we didn't see this favor from the Jewish people, Herod, killing a human being and people being affirming and excited about that. And now he's, he's going for Peter, this, this leader of the disciples in the early church. But it's interesting to me, and I think we have to kind of zoom in, and I kind of italicize a little section of this scripture. After arresting him, he put him in prison. Now, if you know anything about this character, Peter, this is kind of like the stubborn guy. In fact, when he was facing persecution, right after Jesus was arrested, he was the guy that Jesus was like, you're going to deny me three times because I know you. I'm God. I foresee your attitude towards me. And I can tell you're not, you're not all in yet. And what happens? Jesus is arrested, and there's, there's possible persecution at hand. And what, is, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. But now we fast forward many chapters later, many years later. Many people would say, scholars would argue, about ten years has passed, right? And Peter's a completely different person. Because we know in between the lines here, no more denying no more saying, I'm not affiliated with this guy. We know because of the, the noise that the early church was making, he was arrested. He transitioned to this place of suffering. It's interesting to think about it because Peter obviously endured change in some sort of a spiritual maturity process. And it's interesting to highlight the difference of who Peter was, somebody that was like, nah, like I'm not affiliated to somebody that was obviously directly affiliated and now being persecuted because of his faith. And I think sometimes we, 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 we think about Peter and we're like, he just needs to be unashamed, right? He was unashamed. He was not, he was not ashamed or to be a Christian. He needs to be unashamed. But for me, like, when we just kind of like, really, it's just, just semantics to say, like, Peter needs to be more, more unashamed. But to me, it just sounds really like cliche and kind of surfacey. And what really is underneath the hood here of Peter's transformation and spiritual like maturity process was somebody who literally was willing to suffer. He wasn't initially. But now he's, he's literally willing to suffer for the cost of Jesus because he wasn't before. But now as he's progressed, got closer to Jesus, is the leader of this church, there's something that's changed in him. And, it, and it's, it's involved around this willingness to suffer. He had a willingness to carry the cross a willingness to be persecuted even unto death. And it's very interesting because Jesus in the Gospels, in Matthew 4.19, he's, he's, when he's inviting people to follow him, 
He simply says, come, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, these people at this time, specifically these disciples who were fishing during this time, see Jesus, and they had to visualize. They had to see him. They had to be with him. So there's this kind of like pre-context to the fact that Jesus was walking on the earth, and he literally was present with them, that they could see him. So they, there's this come and see element. There's another part of the Gospels where Jesus invites and says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see me. Get to know me. But I love it. Then he engages in this next kind of come of an invitation. He says, come and follow. But after, after the come and follow, really quickly what we realize is there's this other thing that Jesus is leading to in Jerusalem. It's the death on a cross. By excruciating death. Called crucifixion, right? On this trash pile. So sometimes we want to cut, create, create obstacles and create barriers in between that transition of seeing Jesus. Well, he invites us to come follow. But it doesn't end there. And this is where this transition happened for Peter, too, because he began to follow Jesus. But eventually we have to get to this point where we say, it's time to come and die. And life becomes the slow death of ourselves where we're promised a resurrection on the other side. The same way that Jesus resurrected, you know, you and I, when our life's up, when our bodies give out, we're promised new bodies. We're promised this resurrection. But in the meantime, slowly and slowly in this lifetime, we're living this slow death called life. Where we're slowly learning what it means to follow Jesus is a slow death to ourselves. And as we slowly die to ourselves, we become alive in who Christ is. And we can't miss this this morning because this is one of those details that we can say, okay, everything's going great. But there's, a, there's this transition in Peter's life. He was a guy who wasn't willing. He was a guy who was like, I know what's at the cost. Yeah, I'll follow you, but I also am not, I'm not there yet. But we have to make this transition and understanding that spiritual maturity gets to a point where we're saying our life isn't our own. I understand the cost of what it means to be at stake when I'm saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you because I'm follow you, following you unto your death. I'm called to carry my own cross. And then this section of scripture finishes off in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. And it says this, so Peter was kept in prison. He's being persecuted. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So here it is. This is the cliffhanger. And here's what's interesting. Nobody's going to stop reading the narrative at this point. But we're going to. That's what we're going to do. Life does this to us all the time. What we're pausing right here, we're like, man, like this is, I want to know what happens next because stuff's getting bad. The church is beginning to pray. What, what's the rest of the story, right? But once again, if we really get down to life and how life rhythms work, this is us many times in our daily lives. There's a cliffhanger moment. What happens next? What does next look like. But here's what's so interesting for us as the reader. I'm having a stop here, but history becomes one of the greatest proofs for the church. Because we know the ending of the story. We know the big thing. We know the big ending. The church is trying to be persecuted. It's trying to be stopped at a, at a, at a time when their backs were against the wall. Hundreds of people. But we know it multiplies to billions of people into our current 2019 time to be alive. Herod is trying to do his worst to the church, but history shows Herod's worst doesn't work. In the big picture, 
Herod's terror and his worst does not win. We know what happens. And I love it because Luke, the author of this, he's setting us up with this thematic climax. You know, Jesus promised, like, I'm going to spread. This is going to spread Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, right? And we've seen this spread happen And now we're like, man, when it's starting to kind of cross cultures, it's starting to kind of go out into the world, we're kind of left at this moment of like, what's going to happen next? This seems like it's going to get messy. Because this church, it was was cool, it was kind of keeping keeping with, just not disrupting much in the culture, but now we're at this point where this is a worldwide movement that's going to explode, and people are beginning to be threatened by this. And Luke leaves us to this place of saying, here's what's coming next in the book of Acts. Here's what's coming next. We're going to find out what messy looks like when the authority and the movement of Jesus begins to confront the authorities and the chains that keep this world oppressed. But we, as God's people this morning, I just feel we need to cliffhang for one reason and one reason alone. And that reason is we could skip past this verse and miss a key factor in the cliffhang, which is this word called prayer. We cannot breeze past this one. We cannot breeze past the fact that God in his ultimate authority has it all figured out. But there's this participation that his church engages in in this moment that involves our effort as human beings. And it's this beautiful posture called prayer. See, some of us in the room... We might unknowingly or maybe intentionally view kind of like God kind of like a control freak. We're like upset when we read this. We're like he just let James die. There's suffering happening. And, and many times Christians, we want to kind of wrap this away by saying cliches, right? Once again, every, everything happens for a reason, Right? But if literally, if like, if we believe God's the true control freak, we believe that he's moving these kind of chess pieces and allowing James to endure the suffering and this death. But last time I checked, Jesus came to overcome death. Death is not a part of his character. But for some of us in the room, we're like, I don't understand spiritual warfare because we're like, if we believe God's this huge control freak, when, when the Bible says to resist the devil, well, if he's the real chess piece master in this thing that's just controlling everything, then that means why would I resist the devil? Because technically I'm just supposed to resist him because he seems to be the chess piece master that's behind all the evil anyway. Have we ever thought about this? And sometimes this interesting puppeteering of evil perspective that we have, that when people start to poke at it, we realize, what do we mean when we say these things? What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? What would the motivation for prayer be then? If he's just got this all figured out anyway, why would I pray? It begins to affect our posture of prayer. We cannot skip over this. Because we're at a point in human history where Jesus is continuing to hand the baton off and say, You've been given authority. You've been given a place in this story. You've been given a plan in this story. You've been given a responsibility. Some of us this morning, we might be like, I came and saw that God, and he seems like a moral monster. But this morning, could we shape ourselves around the biblical perspective of who God is and our relationship to a God who is in charge 
knows the beginning from the end, but uniquely invites us into a process right here on a moment-by-moment basis in relationship. Psalm 115.16, I love, love this verse coming up on the screen. It says something so interesting. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, the psalmist writes, but the earth he has given to mankind. That's so interesting. Even echoed in the Old Testament is this understanding that God's realm is, is heaven, but there's this responsibility, there's a stewardship, even from creation, that's been given as a responsibility to human beings when it comes to our space. You know, for some people who are really just, really just so sided on this, this idea, like, what's going to happen will happen, right? We have to understand there's, there's a uniqueness to the, this, this, this authority that's been given. I think about when Jesus begins the church and he says, Peter, uh, you, you confess that I'm Lord. Well, guess what? Um, whatever you bind and loose on earth will be loosed Bind it and loosed on heaven. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give you the keys to unlock the door to welcome people into my family. Some, some of us were like, no, no, no. We like what God continue to be the puppeteer master. We were like kind of giving the keys back institutionally to God. But God saying, no, no, no. I'm setting the stage. I'm going to be gone. And I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you the power. I'm giving you the authority to make some noise on the earth. Because I am confined to one human being. But now I'm going to resurrect. And my spirit is going to empower the church to spread and be multiplied. And we are given this authority. And we're the church. And what 2 Corinthians tells us is we are Christ's ambassadors. We are advocates. We're the ambassadors. And it doesn't take away from the heavenly throne of God. God himself sits on the cosmological throne, overseeing, being the king of all kings of the universe, right? But he's overseeing it on his throne. And he's commissioned us to be the people of the land, going and doing the work of Jesus, multiplied and spread. It doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus knows the beginning from the end, but it does place a responsibility as a person who's being identified as a Christian to be the one to engage in this mission, to be the ones that are sent ones, to go out into the world and bring the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to every nook and cranny of society. He is in charge while good and bad are still happening in the land, but he's not controlling us robotically. He's not in agreement with James' death. He's not in agreement with the evil that happens in this world. He's called us to be his ambassadors, though, which includes this connection and authority with the king, which allows us to have a relationship with the one who sits on the cosmological throne and for us to say, God, we need you. God in faith, we need communion with you. Would you use your jurisdiction and heavenly authority to break into situations simply because we're saying, God, in faith, we want to apply your authority to these situations on earth. God, we need you. We're dependent upon you. For some of us, we say, why has God done this? But the better question to ask is why have we, as his church spread out, allowed this to happen? What have we not done Why have we missed it in the authority, in that unique and mysterious authority God's given us as his children and as his ambassadors? Because we live in a world evil. It seems like a pretty hefty world that nobody 
Nobody wants to be connected to, but evil's many times oppressed in its, or in its definition defined as those who oppress, right? And how much do we oppress the world as imperfect human beings living this thing called life completely disconnected with our purpose? It's like we're walking around, the blind leading the blind sometimes, because we're just like, I don't, what, what, why? Why life? Why this life? What's happening next? There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of obstacles in front of me. What am I supposed to do when we become human beings that literally are arced in a direction where, where literally our vices win? There's not a higher authority to allow us to operate. A lot of damage gets done on this earth. A lot of evil breaks in. A lot of hurt breaks in. And many times that's unintentional hurt. But we live in a society, we live in a land where a lot of bad things begin to happen. But this is where Jesus has commissioned the church for us to push back. It's almost like Jesus is a part of this massive armory. And he's like, hey, I'm leaving. But, I, but there's this armory here. And it's like he's just, we're walking up and he's just handing us guns. So go fight. Go do it. I'm commissioning you to go take back the land. And when we pray and when we communicate with God, it's allowing us to step out in faith saying, God, I'm affirming once again, you are a God, and although your presence is here, you're not physically with me, but I know your presence has commissioned me. And when we pray to God and we ask him and we have communion with him and we have conversation with him in faith, we're literally affirming God himself ruling and reigning and beginning to manifest justice in situations where he sees fit in his massive authority. Is he the one behind the evil? No, he's not. He's ruling and reigning and commissioning us to be the people that go push back. So this morning, this helps us frame this idea of prayer and the value of prayer. We have an opportunity each and every day to have communion and communicate in faith with the God of the universe, to bring justice and assist and aid in the justice of how God's choosing to work through you and I as his uniquely created masterpiece as human beings, wanting to make a difference in the world, wanting to push back the powers of evil and darkness. So our practical application this morning as we close is this. How are you responding to your personal cliffhangers? I think about this when the disciples were sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus is like trying to like kind of prep them of like, hey, I'm not going to be around. You're going to have to be, you're going to have to be prayerful people. He says, Peter, you're going to get sifted out like wheat. You got to be prayerful. And it's interesting the posture people take. They're at this table as imperfect human beings that are followers of Jesus, don't have everything figured out. Like they start pointing at other people like, you're going to be this guy that betrays Jesus. Like you're the guy, right? They start pointing people, start pointing the blame. Many of us, we get cliffhangers in life and we want to point the blame. We want to point to other people. We want to kind of distract ourselves from our responsibility of beginning to blame everyone else. For some of those people, it's, it's pride that gets us in the, in the cliffhanger. Like we, we don't have pride to, to humble ourselves down to a place of understanding that there's a higher authority. I love what the disciples are sitting around this table with Jesus. He's like, you need to be prayerful people. And it's like they start arguing about who the greatest is among them, right? This is us sometimes. We, we become the kingdom of our own world. And it comes into conflict with the kingdom of God because we're like, well, I'm so great. Man, there's a cliffhanger in my life. I don't want to take any responsibility. I don't, I don't want to own up. I want to distract myself from a posture that Jesus says we're going to need that's a dependence upon him, which is this thing called prayer. That allows us to connect with him in a deep and a profound way. That when we hit the cliffhangers and the unknowns in life, what prayer does is it affirms God, you're still in charge. 
I'm not robotic. I'm not a puzzle piece in this big, massive equation of you moving me around, and that's my purpose. But you've literally, literally allowed me to live and breathe with a unique authority as a human being partnered with your purposes. And I've been commissioned to go make a massive difference and bring the DNA of heaven wherever I go. And prayer is an open opportunity to continually invite that redemption and faith in our lives to say, we're going to actually make a difference. We're going to actually depend on you when times get tough in our lives where it feels like our backs are against the wall and it feels like, Jesus, I'm not about your mission right now. I don't really feel like spiritual suicide dying to myself. But God's like, let me remind you through my voice, through my communion, through the prayer of what it looks like to have relationship, even when the cliffhangers of life seem like we're going to fall off the cliff. Let me remind you, I'm going to catch you 100% of the time. How are you responding to the cliffhangers of life? And I would encourage us this morning that we would respond in the way that Jesus encouraged the disciples to respond when the cliffhanger of him leaving was about to happen. In the same way that we see a cliffhanger in this section of scripture of understanding, oh my gosh, the church is being persecuted. What's going to happen to Peter? But the church takes this posture of prayer. And I will say this, that Peter meets his match and has a specific fate that if you read the history books, you would understand that he's someone that ends up being crucified upside down. But it didn't stop the big picture and the purpose of what God did because evil did not win. And we, this morning, today, 2019, we have an opportunity to keep playing a part in this story. Does anybody feel like they have a little bit more purpose this morning as we approach our life and say, God, why do I live? Why do I live this thing called life? So here's, here's what I want our next step to be. This is why we're going to be fasting this next week. Because it gives us a real practical opportunity to say, God, less of me, more of you. I understand that there's weapons of warfare spiritually that I can engage in that I know practically are going to set the stage for miracles to break in. We do this as a church once a year. I encourage us to make this a part of our regular rhythms. But we do it intentionally as a church to invite us communally to say, as a church, we're going to believe we're going to have a massive impact. We're setting the stage for miracles to happen. And it only takes one person. If we get one person to engage in this fast other than me, I'll be satisfied because God works and uses his purposes through people. Whether you choose to opt in or not. But I would invite you to the wild adventure of what God is calling us to be a part of in this city and us specifically as a church community to see and believe in faith that God is going to catapult us forward into places we never thought possible. So this is what the, this fast is doing. And here's, here's what I want to encourage us to do. Really easy. Two ways. Every day there's going to be daily updates of ways that we're going to be praying. We're going to be praying over our, our city. We're going to be praying over our world. We're going to be praying over church planners. We're going to be praying over all the aspects this week, every day, and different themes. And I would just encourage you to join. I would encourage you to be a person that, that says no to something in your life. For some people that looks like food. For others it looks like other things. I've, I've made a commitment that I'm going to drink water as a beverage. I'm not going to drink any other things other than water. I'm going to turn my smartphone into a dumb phone. And I'm going to let that be. And I'm going to replace those things with intentional moments, with, with intentional prayer with God. Set the stage and believe what God's capable of doing. So if you want to get updates, here's what I'll first and foremost say. If you're not a part of our online newsletter, we send out weekly emails to give updates. And some of you might be like, I didn't even know we did that. Sign up for that because every day you're going to be getting an email with a prayer update in it. A daily prayer update is saying, here's how we're going to press in and believe we're going to make a difference. 
Here's how we're going to shake the spiritual realm and believe we're setting the stage for God to break in in some amazing ways in 2019. So go to our website, and when you first go to our website, there's a window that pops up that says, hey, subscribe to our newsletter. If that doesn't happen, you can scroll to the bottom of the page, and there's a little button that says subscribe to the newsletter. Put your email in there. You'll get updates every day. If you're a person that doesn't want to do that and you're on Facebook and that's easier for you, you can like our, our page, Ponca City Church. Like that page, and every day you're going to be getting prayer updates. There's going to be a blast out every morning where we're saying, okay, as a church community, we're going to pray for these specific things. We're going to pray for our schools in our city. We're going to pray for the leadership in our city. We're going to pray for the political uh, arena of our nation and the world. We're going to just set our every day with specific intentionality to believe that we're going to make a massive difference. And then the next thing is, is next Sunday is our heart for the house. So I'd encourage you to take one of these envelopes and pray over it. And believe, once again, on a practical level, we're going to invest in something to take care of this space, but also set the stage for us to continue to go outside these walls and be a part of kingdom work, to push back darkness. More and more of us get connected with our personal calling of understanding that we are called to be people, that, man, Jesus has given us man, what we need, and we're going to go out and we're going to push back on the darkness that sometimes feels overwhelming in the darkest places in our city. And we're going to see life change happen. And we're going to see the church continue to spread and multiply in a way that we never thought possible. Amen?